0: Good evening. Take your Bibles this evening, if you would, and turn to uh, Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at several different passages in our time together tonight. I want to thank you for being here and just say how much I love our worship time together. I love the songs that that we sing to the Lord and about the Lord. It's a very different style of worship than I grew up on. Uh, To be honest, I grew up in a small town in western Kentucky, and we had hymnals that had shape notes for those who are old enough to know what a shape note is. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, Myself, I've just heard people talk about it. And some of those songs that I grew up listening to, I still love and still sing. But one of the things I've learned as a pastor is that the content is actually much more important than the style of music. There are a lot of different styles of music that I like. Sometimes I break out in rap around our house. Uh, I know, I'm I'm sure you're anxious for me to do that tonight, the way the pastor broke out into song this morning. I I would certainly do a better job at it. uh, If you've never seen me rap, you've missed a treat. You know, whether we realize it or not, we learn a tremendous amount of theology, either for good or for bad, through the songs that we sing. After all, think about it. How many of us can remember the words to the songs we sing regularly? It's just something about it that makes it easy. How many of you could memorize Dr. Cook's sermon from this morning? How many of you would want to? How many of you would want to memorize the sermon I'm about to preach? None of you. You can't. It's much more difficult. There's something about music that drives the message into our minds much more readily. And that's why it's important... That what we sing about God and to God is actually biblical. And, you know, to be honest, there, there are some songs that I hear on the radio that I absolutely love the music. And I, over, I, I over overwhelmingly agree with almost everything in the words. And yet there are times that there's just one or two lines in the songs that are just so incorrect. And so undermine a key doctrine of our faith that we could, we could never sing them in public worship. I'm smart enough to hear it on the radio and think, man, I love the, I love the tune to that song. But that line right there is just, that's a tough line. That, that line is not correct. But to sing it in a public worship, we would have to give a caveat and explain it. And it, and it just wouldn't be appropriate because it undermines the message that we're trying to convey. Think, think about this course for a moment from the song In Christ Alone. I think they're going to put it on the screen. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. That sentence is a dangerous lie that paints a picture of a vindictive God and it should not be sung according to people like Paul Young. Some of you were thinking I was veering over into heresy right there, weren't you? (laughs) That was the intended effect. (laughs) According to Paul Young, songs like that should never be sung. Now, that name should be familiar to you if you were here this morning because our pastor actually mentioned his name. If you weren't weren't familiar with his name prior to tonight, he he is the author of of the best-selling novel, The Shack, that has sold over 20 million copies now and recently came out uh, in a movie. And I'm not here tonight to debate whether or not Christians should read that book or books like it. I, I, the, the fact of the matter is I read books all the time that I disagree with. The book is not the problem. The problem is our shallow theology that we don't recognize bad things when we read it. But, but if we do read something like that, we should do so using a sense of biblical discernment. Now, we'll say one other thing about it, and that is we read a lot of things that are theologically incorrect uh, or perhaps they contain poor or weak theology. But they're not directly theological in nature. They're not written for the purpose of conveying theological truth. They just happen to have some incorrect theology in them. But, But on the other hand, there are other books that are distinctly theological in nature. For example, this shack is a distinctly theological book. It is written as a novel in order to convey theological principles about God. And therefore, if a book is written uh, with the goal of teaching the- theological truth, then it should be critiqued accordingly. After all, it's one thing to be a wolf. It's another thing to be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, To pretend uh, and to convince people that you're something that you're not. Now, as I said, certain, you know, people have have debated certain elements in the book. For example, uh, many people contend that the book promotes universalism the belief that eventually everybody goes to heaven, regardless of whether they've repented or their sin or not and trusted in Christ. Uh, Eventually, love wins, and everyone, uh, those who have followed Christ and those who haven't, all end up in the same heaven. But if there's any debate about what Paul Young believes, all doubt should be removed with the release of his new book. And it's not a novel. He has a new book out and it's entitled Lies We Believe About God. Lies We Believe About God. And in the book he addresses 28, according to him, 28 lies that Christians believe about God. Let me give you just a couple and then I want to hone in on the one that pertains to our our service tonight. He says, for example, that the statement, God is in control, is a lie. He rejects the sovereignty of God. Instead, he says that God, quote unquote, submits rather than controls. That's a pretty weak God. Another lie that Christians believe, according to Young, is that you need to get saved. He says that's a lie. He says at one point, God has acted decisively and universally for all humankind. The book goes on by asking, are you suggesting then that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? Young responds, that is exactly what I'm saying. So I have not read The Shack. I don't feel the need to, but, but if there's any debate as to... Whether or not he's promoting universalism in that particular book, I would say he most likely is, because that's the theology that he adheres to. The final one that I want to mention uh, pertains specifically to what I want us to look at tonight as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. And that's the lie, according to, to Young, that the cross was God's idea. He says the idea that the cross was God's idea is a lie. Now, to be honest, Paul Young is not the only guy out there who believes that. I don't want to just pick on him. You know, really, he's a modern-day writer that's rehashing some of the same liberal uh, theology that's been around for many years. So in response to the question, who originated the cross? He answers, if God did then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner. In other words, that if the cross was God's idea, then God is a child abuser. That he would send his son to the cross. That he is a divine child abuser. He goes on to say, better know God at all than this one. So in other words, he would reject the song in Christ alone alone, because it refers to the wrath of God. In other words, that the cross had to occur in order to appease God's wrath and to satisfy his his justice because he is a just God. Well, Young, as I said, is not alone in his belief. It's becoming a more popular view among some so-called evangelicals. And, and as a result, at the Southern Baptist Convention week before last, the, uh, the convention unanimously, I believe, passed a resolution to make it clear that we disagree with those who want to reject the concept of God's justice, of God's wrath. We, we passed a resolution affirming, reaffirming our belief in the substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary death of Christ the doctrine that Young and those in his camp so adamantly oppose, is the thought, as, as you're well aware, that the sinless Christ died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, thereby paying the penalty for our sin that God's holiness requires. He requires a payment for sin. And in so doing, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, Paul Young and others reject that view of God. Now, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what Paul Young or those in his camp think about anything. If some people were half as smart as they think they are, they'd be twice as smart as they really are. And so it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what he thinks. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what the Gettys think, who wrote the song, In Christ Alone. It doesn't doesn't matter what I think or what the Southern Baptist Convention thinks. The real issue is what does God say about the matter? What does God say about the matter? And so I want us to finish up this evening as we prepare for the Lord's Supper to be reminded of why this doctrine, the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, is so important. And I have no doubt that most everyone, if not everyone in this room, believes and affirms that doctrine and yet it's so easy for us to to begin to drift as, as the world around us and even as preachers deny that key doctrine. So I want to bring out three points this evening. Number one, rejection of the substitutionary atonement is a rejection of the Word of God. It's a rejection of the Word of God. I I think I had you to turn to Romans chapter 3. I want to read a passage tonight and just highlight one particular verse on this point. And it's a passage that our pastor preached from a few weeks ago. Uh, And so I don't want to rehash his sermon. He did a fantastic job. But I just want us to look at one key phrase in verse 25. But I'll read verses 21 through 26 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want you to notice verse 25 in particular tonight. It says, whom God displayed publicly. Not who man displayed publicly, but who God displayed publicly as a propitiation. It's a sacrifice. It it means a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath so that His wrath toward us is turned into favor toward us. So that when God looks at us, we're no longer His enemies, we're His friends. We're his children. This concept is not just found in Romans. It's found throughout the Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 3 where where the Bible prophesies that one day Christ would bruise Satan's head. In other words, because of Christ's death on the cross, Satan would ultimately one day be defeated. Death would be crushed. Sin would be crushed through the sacrifice that was made. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, The sacrificial system required the blood sacrifice of a perfect lamb. Why is that? Because in the New Testament, just as we sung a moment ago, John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system was to point to the time when the ultimate sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice, would give his life. Now the question is why? Why was he giving his life? Was it, as some say, just God's way of showing how much he loves us by identifying with our sufferings? Uh, That's some people's view of why Christ died. Was it just as an example for us? Is that why Christ died on the cross, to provide an example of what it means to, to live sacrificially? Because it is true, it certainly is true that his death should serve as an example to Christians that we should be willing to sacrifice and suffer as well. But if that's all his death was about, then ultimately we can save ourselves by just following the example of Christ and trying to obey God as Christ did. No. No, ultimately his death provided the payment for our sins. And we're familiar with that. We know what the writer of Hebrews says in 9.22 when he says that without the shedding of blood... There is no remission of sins. The shedding of Christ's blood upon the cross was necessary to appease God's wrath and to satisfy God's justice. It's what the Bible refers to in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we also just sang about. And I promise you that Dr. Bruton and I did not talk about this prior to our message tonight. But this is pretty cool how God does it sometimes. It's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says when when it says that God made him who knew no sin. To become sin on our behalf. In other words, he took our sin upon himself so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is the great exchange. It's the great exchange. God takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9 says it like this. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And it's through the substitutionary death of His Son. Secondly, I want you to see that rejection of the substitutionary atonement not only rejects the Bible, it it, it ignores the words of Jesus Himself. The words of Jesus Himself. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 28... Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give himself as a ransom for many. You know, people like Paul Young refer to God as a divine child, child abuser. They, they argue that to believe in the substitutionary atonement makes God an evil father like we hear about at times on the news when a parent abuses or murders a small child. Now there are multiple problems with that view, but one of the problems is that it ignores the fact that Jesus did not die on the cross as a helpless baby. The cross was eternally agreed upon by the Holy Trinity. God the Father is not a, a child abuser because Jesus, because the Trinity was in agreement. That the cross was God's plan. Jesus' words in Matthew remind us that he knew exactly why he came to this earth, and he did so willingly. God the Father was not a cosmic abuser, because God the Son was intimately aware of his purpose on this earth. And in fact, in, in John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. He goes on to say in verse 18, No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And he says that he came to give his life a ransom for many. I want us to think about that word for for just a moment. Uh, what, what the word for means in place of. He hung on the cross as a substitute For our sin debt that had to be paid in order for God's justice to be met. You you well understand that God cannot be a holy God and leave sin unpunished. And even as human beings, we recognize a need for justice on some level, do we not? When terrorists attack, do we not want a sense of justice? Do we not want them caught and punished? Do we not want justice carried out? We we don't want them to walk away scot-free without being punished for their evil deeds. And if we as imperfect, sinful human beings have this innate desire for justice, then imagine the offensiveness of our sin to the all-wise, perfect, and holy God of the universe. God must be just. And so when, when Jesus died on the cross, it was more than for an example It was as a substitute for sinners so that God's justice could be met and His righteousness upheld. Notice not only in that verse in Matthew that Jesus not only tells us that He was going to the cross in place of sinners, but He also tells us uh, the, the, uh, the result of what that death will accomplish. He says He will give His life as a ransom for. As a ransom or in the place of many. A ransom is a price paid To free a prisoner or a slave. The question I want to pose this evening is to whom was the ransom paid? To whom was the ransom paid? We sang about it just a uh, a moment ago. If we say that it was paid to Satan, then Satan is now the one in the position of power. That Christ paid a ransom to Satan so that we could be saved. That can't be. Satan has never been in the position of power and besides that, Satan wants to take as many people to hell as possible. He's not interested in any deals. He, he doesn't want any prisoners to be set free. No, the ransom was paid to God. In other words, it was the payment that satisfied God's justice. It's exactly why we sing till on that cross when Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied. You know, ironically, young Argues that the cross was not God's idea because it makes God out to be an abusive father. He's not a sovereign God who acts, but rather he's an impotent God who is not in control and who simply reacts. In other words, he feels the need to get God off the hook. He feels the need to get God off the hook for being a mean father, for sending his son to the cross. But I might suggest that if that's his goal, he fails miserably. Let me explain what I mean by that. What I mean is that if the cross was man's idea, and yet we believe that God knows everything, that he is in fact omniscient, then why didn't God stop it? Even if it wasn't God's idea, why didn't he stop it? He either wasn't powerful enough to stop it, or he didn't care enough to stop it. If the cross being God's idea makes God some kind of spiritual monster, then how is he any different if he knowingly watches it happen and refuses to intervene? Think about that from a human standpoint for just a moment. If I have the knowledge that someone is going to harm my child, and I have the power to prevent it, and I do nothing, then how is that any different than if I had done it myself? You see, Young's attempt to get God off the hook by arguing that the cross was not God's idea, it fails miserably. In fact, if you're going to deny the substitutionary atonement because it makes God look like an abusive father, then it seems to me that the only logical way to do that is to say that God doesn't know what's going to happen. God doesn't know what's going to happen. In other words, God is not omniscient. God does not know what's going to happen. God did not know that his son was going to be crucified. That's called open theism. And it's heretical. Now let me just say a word about the word heresy and and heretic and heretical. We we often throw that word around a lot very loosely. And we look at any doctrine that we don't agree with and we say, "That's, that's heretical. We need to be very careful about that. Because what we're in essence saying when we say that someone is a heretic or or a principle is heretical, we're saying that 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 doctrine is so far off that a person cannot believe that and go to heaven. That they're unregenerate, that they're unsaved. And so I don't use that word lightly. You would have to believe that God doesn't know anything. And I submit to you that that's no God at all. That's no God at all. No, God in fact did know the cross was his idea and Jesus himself affirmed that truth. The last thing I want you to see this evening is that rejection of the substitutionary atonement diminishes the depths of God's love. It really undermines the significance of God's love, just how much he loves us. Romans 5.8 says... That God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. We just read over that verse and if we've grown up in church, we just can take that verse for granted. Think about the words that I just said. That God loved us while we were still sinners. That That reminds us that God could rightfully condemn every human being. His justice demands that sin must be punished. But what we see in the substitutionary death of Christ is that while he would be just in condemning all of us to an eternal hell, his love was so great that he himself paid the penalty for those sins in the person of his son. You see, when we understand the necessity of God's justice, it helps us to more fully recognize just how much he loves us. And the length that he went to in order to save us. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't express the depth of God's love. If God could just turn his head and say, Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, it wasn't a big deal. But when we understand his justice that he has to punish sin... And the fact that he saved us in spite of ourselves. That's amazing. Occasionally I'll have someone come to me and say, Jeff, you know, I I just want to tell you that I'm sorry for such and such. Something I said or something I did. And and to be honest, I may not even know what they're talking about. I may not even remember it. or, Or perhaps I do know what they're referring to, but I was never offended in the least. I wasn't offended. And so it's easy for me to say, oh, no problem, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Because it was never a big deal to begin with. I never felt like they sinned against me to begin with. But our sin is offensive to God. His holiness and His justice require punishment for that sin. And that's what makes His love that much more amazing. Because at the cross, we see God demanding payment for sin, and then we see God making payment for sin. He is both just and loving. And when I contemplate the depths of God's love, what does it do? It does at least two things for me. It strengthens my resolve to abstain from sin and it strengthens my confidence that when I do sin, He still loves me. I remember my son when he was little going through this little game and I may have shared this before, but say, Daddy, do you love me? I'm like, Son, I love you. There's nothing you can do that will cause me not to love you. And then he would go into the game. Daddy, what if I do such and such? I said, Son, I'll still love you. You, There's nothing you can do that will cause me not to love you. Dad, what if I do something really bad? I said, Son, I'll still love you. You're my son. I love you. Dad, what if I hit you? Will you still love me? He's like, four. I said, son, I'll still love you. I'm going to paddle your behind, but I'll still love you. There is nothing that you can do to cause me not to love you. How much greater is our Father's love? That there is nothing good that we can do that would cause him to love us any more, and there is nothing bad that we can do that would cause, uh, cause him to love us any less. He just loves us. And so it strengthens my resolve to abstain from sin and it strengthens my confidence that when I do sin, he still loves me. And if I'm ever tempted to think that he doesn't love me, I need to look no further than the cross. He's not an evil, abusive father. He's a good father. And if you're a Christian, he's forgiven you and he has declared you righteous through the substitutionary death of his son. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper tonight, let me just say that if you're if you've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sins you're a member of an evangelical church you follow the Lord in baptism and you're trying to follow the Lord in obedience you're not perfect but you're trying you're seeking to follow the Lord then we invite you to join with us as we celebrate tonight if you're not a Christian or perhaps you're not walking with the Lord I would encourage you to allow the plate to pass when it when it comes down your row I want us to have a word of prayer this evening Then I'm going to ask our deacons. I'm going to ask Pastor Craig if he will come and help me uh, distribute the elements as our deacons come to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Uh, Those words seem very, very inadequate, and yet they're the best words that we have. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for demonstrating your love at the cross. And Father, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, may we be encouraged tonight as we reflect not only on your justice but also on your love. That you are both just and loving and you've justified us through the blood of your Son. And we give you praise in Jesus' name.